Peace and blessings, love and light, everyone. Welcome to Think of It This Way with the Hood Therapist. I am your host, the Hood Therapist. This is my very first episode. I welcome you. I appreciate you for tapping in. For my very first episode, I felt it only right to introduce myself to you guys properly. So I'm going to share with you an interview I did with a good friend of mine, Janelle, JS Self-Care. Welcome to the JS Self-Care Podcast. I am your host, Janelle. I am a life coach and a social worker of 17 years. I'm based out of New York. A journey to self-care can begin at any point in your life. Your journey can begin as a child, as a teenager, as well as in your adult years. Without further ado, I would like to introduce Danielle Stroman from Reconnected Village. Danielle, can you please introduce yourself and tell us about your journey to self-care? Hey everybody, I'm Danielle Stroman, also known as the Hood Therapist. I am the founder of Reconnected Village. That is my business founded off of my personal experience of being placed in a foster care at three months, adopted by the same family at 12, and then re-abandoned at the age of 15. At the age of 17, I took on my journey to find my family. Through doing so, I took to social media and was able to help others reconnect with loved ones they became estranged from or never met through foster care, adoption, incarceration, as well as death. I've also helped women out of domestic violence situations and helped talk people down from suicide attempts. Through my organization, we provide therapeutic services through life coaching from beginning to end, as well as thereafter, as well as for others. They say it takes a village to raise a child. Sometimes we didn't have that village. So Reconnected Village was a space that was curated for all because I found that when we come together through our commonality, we can actually help each other heal. Thank you for sharing, Danielle. Can you start with us with your why you were in foster care, if you know why you were in foster care, and if you were adopted? Can you tell us a little bit about that? So I was in foster care since I was three months old. Um, the reason why I did find out, but you'll have to read my books to find out why. <laughs> yes. Um, <clears throat> as far as... Um, my self-care is concerned. I started my self-care at the age of 17. Um, foster care for me um, was traumatic. I had an adoptive mother that didn't actually want me. She literally stated that I was a check for her. Um, and my adoptive father was the one that actually wanted me, which was her husband. At the time, they were boyfriend and girlfriend. Um, foster care was a job for her. So it was like a revolving door of children at all times. Um, she just, it was just a job. She really didn't want children. Um, that's, it was neglectful. It was abusive. I was molested and not believed. Uh, it was just a lot of traumatic experiences within that household. So she didn't show you any love, but yes, yeah, um, adoptive father showed you love but you actually didn't know am I correct right so I wouldn't say that he showed me love quote unquote um he was more so a staple in the household as a provider um he was literally an older man he was actually old enough to be her father she met him through one of her girlfriends so he was one of those people that was always in the home always knew who he was um but there was no real love or affection. He was more so the person that went out, made the money, made sure the bills were paid. And we didn't have too much interaction. 
Um, if I'm being quite honest, I just remember watching football with them a lot. So I'm a I'm a heavy football fan. What um, team you like? I'm a Philadelphia Eagles fan, hometown. <laughs> he he was actually uh, used to watch the Broncos faithfully. So I believe he was a Broncos fan, and for years I loved the Broncos because of it. But I'm a hometown girl, so Philly. Um, Sixers, Eagles, Flyers, all day. <laughs> you stay with your um, town. Yes. And I remember dyeing his hair. He used to get Beijing black dye. And that's, that used to be our one thing that we did together. I would always dye his hair. But I really didn't know how he felt about me because he wasn't a vocal person. Um, he sat back and, you know, was that quiet person, even in the midst of some of the things that were going on. I, I believe that they had conversations on the back end, but I never um, bear witness to any of it. So did he sit and watch while your foster mother was abusive or did he not know because he was at work? Um, no, he knew she was abusive to every child that came in that household. I can't remember outside of a couple. Um, I can remember two children that she wasn't abusive to. And one of them actually had a bone disease. So he was very fragile. But outside of that, any and everybody that came through that house um, was verbally and physically abused so much so that I still have contact with some of them and they're still traumatized behind the things that went on in her household. That could be very traumatic. At what age did you break away from her? How did you get away? Did she send you away or what happened? So, you know, she had me since I was three months old. I wound up getting adopted against my will per se at the age of 12 I remember um, sitting in the courthouse and, um, you know, the judge asked foster children before they get adopted by a family, do you want to be adopted by this family? And she had so much involvement with the foster care system. I was afraid to tell them no, which was my answer. Um, I said, yes. The reason I was scared to tell them no is she was so heavily involved in the system that these people literally used to come to our house for holidays. They attended her wedding. Um, they just, they were people that stopped by just like any other friend or family. So I felt like, you know, if I told them, and then some of them actually were at the home at some point in time and saw her actually beating the children that were placed in the home. So I felt like there was no safety net for me. And if I was to tell them, no, I didn't want her to adopt me. Um, I was going to wind up back in her house anyway. So what would be the point of speaking up? So I got adopted um, kind of sort of against my will. I said no, but wanted to say yes. But the one thing from that day, two things that I took from that day, honestly, and it may sound weird. Um, one, I did see my original birth certificate. So I was able to see the names of um, the people that were my original parents or what I thought, because I later found out that my father's name was not what I thought I saw on that paper. Mm -hmm. um, and biological um, mother, the name was accurate, but I was spelling it wrong. At 12, I had forgotten. I did remember the name, but I had forgotten to spell it. And the second thing I remember from that day um, was that was the spark of my love for pancakes. <laughs> Um, my adopted father immediately after adopting me, he was the one that actually wanted me. He took me to a diner and we got some buttermilk uh, pancakes and I've been a fan ever since. Um, but leading up to the adoption was um, a really good experience in the sense that um, I was able to see a picture of myself, my biological mother, 
and a little boy, which I assume was my brother. And that was the first time I had ever seen what she looked like. Um, and at the time, I didn't realize, I didn't make the connection that she was still coming around at some point in time. You know, I'm older and I absolutely don't remember it, but I do remember that picture. Yeah. Um, fast forward, I did find out I was around five in that picture, five years old in that picture. Um, but leading up to, you know, the agency sent someone in, they did an interview with me. Um, we did like this little book of activities. They asked me things that I like, and I felt good about that process because I finally had somebody paying attention to me and asking me what I actually like. Um, and prior to, um, you know, I was called in the kitchen and I was told that my name was going to change. <laughs> I got adopted. Mm -hmm. So my name to all of this was Salisa Kara Hamilton and you know they called me in the kitchen they gave me a sheet of paper and I was told to write down um, what I wanted my name to be and 12 year old me wrote a bunch of ridiculous stuff <laughs> were you naming yourself cars and Hennessy and Lexus no I wasn't naming myself I can't remember the names but I promise you they were ridiculous names um, stuff that I probably made up in my head um, but they sounded really cute mm -hmm. to me but I absolutely was, I, wasn't, I wasn't in the position to be really picking the name um but I remember his name was John Stroman and he called me in the kitchen and he said put Danielle on there little did I know that that was literally going to be my name so my name went from Salisa Kara Hamilton to Danielle Lisa Stroman at the age 12 the, at the wow. age of 12 and the Lisa part was actually kept because people in the neighborhood didn't call me Salisa. Everybody called me Lisa for short. So that was to keep some kind of normalcy. But the traumatic part about that was this is a neighborhood that I literally grew up in. So there from three months and here I am at a school that I've been in since kindergarten and I'm coming in at seven in seventh grade. And the teacher, I can remember <laughs> his name, Mr. Baker, Mr. Clicker um, says Danielle Stroman, and here I am raising my name, saying present, and everybody turned around, was like, "That's not your name," and I'm like, "Yes, it is." So at the age of twelve, it's very traumatic to go to school, and then you have this brand new name, and people didn't even know that you were in foster care. So um, then you have to explain the name mm -hmm. change, and I didn't know how to explain it, and at the same time, I was coming into a place of you know having my voice and I was being molested for years prior to this and at that same age I had decided that I was going to speak up because I was fed up of the treatment that I was getting from somebody that was a close um family friend um and I wasn't believed wow so you know, I was going through that and now I'm going through people picking at me because oh your name Danielle you you know what I mean I'm I'm going through that stuff um Fast forward, and now I'm 15, and my adopted father passed away. So with him passing away, that's when I discovered that um, his wife really, really didn't want me. I mean, her treatment was obvious um, of me, her not wanting me to be there. She really, I feel like she never really liked me, mm -hmm. um, but I was just there, and I was a check. So when he passed away, that's when I was put out and I was sent to a military boarding school called Scotland School for Veterans Children in Scotland, Pennsylvania. And I was left there. So now I'm at the age of 15 and, you know, I'm 
taking care of myself. I wound up having to get two jobs. I worked at the school in Hallmark Dining Services, serving people in the cafeteria. And, you know, during the summertime, I worked at Sheets, which is um, like a, I guess you can say a gas station slash fast food spot. So I was working there and, you know, I'm now at the age of 17. You became an adult at 15. Yeah. The legal age is 18 to 21 and you were 15 years old. Yeah. Out there by myself trying to figure things out in a place full of strangers. Um, You know, I had like this standoffish demeanor to myself because you guys are strangers and you don't know what the heck I just been through. And now I'm thrown into this environment and reabandoned. You know, I'm forced to survive parentless again. Um, And I don't know who I am. I'm just going through a lot of stuff and trying to figure out why. And the staff up there was very supportive because they made a phone call to her once they found out that I was supposed to be getting Social Security benefits. And, you know, she was on speaker and I heard her say to them, if I have to send this check, these checks up there, y'all might as well send that be home because that wasn't part of the plan. So they took her off speaker. And next thing I know, I just had like a circle of support from the staff, making sure I was okay, helping me with military ball and prom and things like that. Um, And now we're, I'm at the age of 17 up here at this boarding school. And I'm realizing that, you know, my time here is now Mm -hmm. ending. (laughs) Um, What do I do next? So I want to say a month prior to me graduating, um, well, before a month, I sat down and started writing. That had become my therapy. When I was in her home, my therapy was reading. It was like an escape for me. And I had started journaling, but I stopped writing. Um, I had always loved writing, but I had stopped journaling because she found one of my journals one day. And I was just expressing myself. Um, I expressed how I felt about myself how I felt about my living conditions well not conditions because the house was beautiful it was nothing wrong with the house just how I was being Mm -hmm. treated I expressed my like for a boy that lived across the street um and of course I got my behind beat because she didn't like the things that I was talking about she took me to the doctor and made sure I still was a virgin things like that um and she had really tightened up on me even more because of my journalist so I stopped um but here I am 17 at the school and I'm just surrounded by strangers and I really didn't know who to talk to and, you know, coming close to leaving because, you know, 12th grade, you got to go once you graduate. So I went and I sat next to a payphone and I started writing and the only people that I can think to write to because I had become so disconnected from everybody, I'm sitting next to a payphone and I don't have anybody to call So I wrote two letters and those letters were addressed um, to the two people that came together and and made me, which was my biological mother and father, Um, you know, knowing that they may never read it. I just felt like I needed to get it out. So that's where my my self um, my self-care journey started was my writing. When you say you um, wrote these two letters, were you able to send them out? Because at that time probably there was no social media. Am I correct? I wasn't able to send them out. I didn't have anybody to send them out to. (laughs) Um, I was there by myself. Do you still have those letters? 
I do. They're actually the opening to my yeah, book. upcoming book. We can't. We cannot yeah. wait to read it. <laughs> so, so I don't have a release date, but it is called um, "From My Thoughts to Paper." This is my. This was my therapy. Um, and I feel like me expressing that, I I decided to go ahead and put it into book form and publish it because I had been saying it for years and I started connecting with people and helping them. And I feel like I've not feel like I have literally helped so many people and they have been waiting to hear the rest of my story. Um, and just the fact that I shared, I was able to help people heal. So I feel like me putting it out there, I'll be able to help people on a larger scale because people go through things in silence and I'm not a silent person. No, <laughs> Not a silent person. I I share things because I'm not embarrassed. I guess that's coming from being 15 and just my life just being out there. I really don't care what people say or think. So I'm just that's a great thing. So you're about to graduate. You write these two letters. What happens after you write these letters? Um, a month before graduation, I decided to call the woman that had adopted me and I asked her, could she come to my graduation? So I guess this was, this was like my last attempt before getting out of here. I don't know if at the time I was pulling for strings and hoping that maybe that would get me back into her home. But in my mind, I do know that this woman was mom mm -hmm. to me. You know, I had been in her home since I was three months and she's all I knew when this was a big accomplishment I was proud of myself I made honor roll every marking period while I was up there so it was a blessing I had got out of her home and I felt more comfortable after a while because I had to definitely get acclimated to my new environment but I excelled in that environment um, you know taking care of myself and being the best student that I could so I wanted her to come in and take part in that so a month prior to I called her I asked her she you know um, two weeks after that, I called her again and I asked her and she told me no. So a week prior, I made one final attempt and asked her. And that's when she said, I'm not coming to your graduation. You need to find a way back to Philadelphia and find a way, um, find a place to live. So I, you know, broke down crying, got myself together. I called my aunt, which is her sister. And she wound up coming to my graduation along with her two sons um, my adoptive older brother came and my godmother, which was one of her classmates from school. And she brought my boyfriend at the time from Philadelphia. So they all came to my graduation. Um, I didn't tell any of my actual family members what had been said to me. So, you know, they left Scotland, Pennsylvania and headed back to Philadelphia. And here I was still there. Um, and my godmom. She was like, well, I'm going to take you home. And during a ride, I decided to tell her what was said to me. So now she knew that I didn't have a place to go. But she um, kind of went into problem solving mm -hmm. mode. And I, I made a phone call and I wound up staying with a person that I call Miss Lady. Um, it's an older woman that lived on the block that I grew up on, but she had moved to the next block over. So she allowed me to stay with her. And I stayed there um, for a little less than two years because now, you know, I'm doing grown things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I wound up pregnant um, with my first child who I had right before I turned 21. And when I got pregnant, 
she's like, you know, you out there doing grown things, you and whoever this guy is need to work it out. Um, so I wound up moving in with him. Me moving in with him started a cycle of very, very toxic relationships in my life um, because I had always wanted someone to love and care for me. I gravitated towards that relationship, but I had found myself um, in a bad way. I was pregnant, working and going to school, and he decided he wanted to quit his job and, you know, get into illegal activities. Mm -hmm. With him doing that, a flock of people started coming around him. So now I'm finding myself being cheated on because they now see this guy with money. And I'm being locked out of the house and, you know, walking around the streets pregnant at night or sleeping on trains back and forth just to have a place to stay or even outside. Um, so things just got really, really real for me at that point. Um, and I, I kind of regressed back into depression. After I had my daughter, that's when I had my first suicidal um, thought. Um, I noticed that I started to, even in relationships, I started to attribute my past and put it into my present. So when men didn't want me, I would say in my mind, of course they didn't want me. My own parents mm. didn't want me. Who would want me? That's the That's the conversation that I started to pick up for myself and carry. And at the time... Um, I had became Muslim. So now me being Muslim, I find myself doing things to try to adhere to this religion that I'm following because I had been forced to be Baptist. And in high school, I did religious studies um, for my senior project so I can figure out what it is I actually wanted to follow. And Islam was the only thing that I really gravitated towards and felt like it was truth. So now I'm finding myself in and out of multiple quote-unquote marriages because in Islam it's very easy to get married um, and very, very easy to get divorced. And the reason why we hop in and out of these marriages because um, I was young and a lot of people, I mean, not even just being young, it's just a thing in the community here, mainly in Philadelphia, where they hop in and out of marriage because we're trying not to fall into fornication. So what we're doing is we're getting into these marriages or contracts and you know we're coexisting and getting to know each other and then we find out it doesn't work and I also found myself dealing with people's husbands because you know they're allowed to have multiple wives so I just found myself picking up really really bad behaviors um and it was traumatizing because relationship to relationship I wanted something to stick and it just wasn't and then I found myself having four children and being a single mother and the father's acting like the kids didn't exist. Um, so that kind of transformed again into I'm this person with all this trauma and this hurt. And I didn't resolve my issues. And now I'm pushing that off on to my children through my parenting. Because I was parenting from a place of fear. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. It's you just, parenting from I, a I place have, of fear. Then you introduce yourself to a religion that you don't want to, you know, be shamed. So right. also you had to do whatever that religion required, which was added fear right. because of course you don't want to go to hell. You don't want to be strike stricken. You just want to <laughs> live and you like, oh my gosh, I got to get married or yeah. I'll go to hell because mm-hmm. of, of fornication. And I was a very, very sexual person. Um, probably because of me being molested at a young age. I was very, very sexually explorative. Um, 
sex mm-hmm. felt good. I, it took away some I mean? of the it pain was, it was for the comfort. moment. It was comforting. Right. It, was, it was a comfort for me. And it's crazy because with me saying that, it, it reminded me about a conversation I had with Miss Lady and the woman that I adopted as my mother, Mama Rita. I met her when I was up at the boarding school and I love her to death. If anybody asks who's my mom, they know that I'm talking about her because she's been there for me and she's been there for the birth of all my children. Yes, That's my that mom. is your mom. <laughs> Sometimes my- it's not the people that birthed us. It's not the people that adopted us. It's people and strangers that we meet that we build families with. Right. And it seems like that's right. the family you built while you were in boarding school. Right. That's where my village started. So Reconnected Village um, started there um, in essence, not in formation, but in essence, it started there because I had started to acquire my village. Like some of the people that I was friends with, I'm still friends with present day. Um I have someone that I call my brother and his mother became my mother um, and I got integrated into that family. That's super dope. So Danielle, now you're a mom. Mm -hmm. You're out of school. So now Mm -hmm. your journey has shifted. I went to so many schools. (laughs) I went to so many schools. Yes. You know what, Danielle? Your life changed. What does that journey look like now? Um, so now it looks like the hood therapist. Wow. Um, well, we want to hear more about so, the hood therapist, but if you don't mind us asking, um, did you ever find your parents or not? Or how does, how's that looking for you? So I shared everything. And when I say everything, I do mean everything, my failures, my sorrow, um, any way that I felt, any new search that I was embarking on, I shared it on Facebook so much so that I had people that were pissed off at me and my adopted family. Like, why are you telling this? And I'm that person that's sitting there like, well, listen, you guys will read a book or watch a Lifetime movie and it's based off a real life story. And you guys will have your shed tears and, you know, connect with the person. But as soon as it hit close to home, why are you mm-hmm. telling it? So, because it was a secret, I, you know, I, that saying what goes on right. in this house stays in this house. That part. And I'm not that person. And that's where the hood therapist came from because I was that person that actually shared everything. And my journey to trying to heal myself through writing, um, it wasn't enough. So I decided that I was going to go to therapy. So I shared everything. Um, and with me sharing that, I was able to, connect with people they started hopping in my inbox or commenting on my statuses like we're so proud of you um because you shared this I've had people say you know I thought that I was going through stuff but I'm really not and after you know talking to you you know I had people that were thinking about taking their life and they decided against it um ironically I had someone that I was close with from the boarding school she came to me um, after I found my family and said, you know what, you've been through so much and you held so strong around the time that I found my family, her brother was killed and she was contemplating suicide. And I shared my victory of finding my family. And that same day she called me crying and was like, you know what, I was literally about to take my life and I saw your status and I, I found hope in it. So I was successful in finding my um, family February 1st of 2017. 
Um, I started off my journey with like the white pages and sitting up all night calling people like weirdo <laughs> and um, following leads that I got, you know, from Sharon and people like, well, check out this area. I heard something from this person and I wound up in 20th and Susquehanna here in Philadelphia. And I spoke with a drunk person that said that they knew my mother, but everybody was like, don't believe them. Fast forward, turns out he was actually right because she did live in that area. So listen, yes, to drunk you know that saying. What they saying? <laughs> a drunk mom speaks a sober. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, but yeah, with me going on social media, people came to me and people that I knew since I was a child, I didn't know that they put children up for adoption or you know their kids had babies and they hid it from the family and you know they're now looking for these these babies. Um, so I was helping people connect, even though I hadn't connected. And when I did connect, it just sparked something very, very huge, um, where people were just pouring out and they were like, well, what happened? Like, you know, are y'all still family? Did this happen? Did that happen? And I didn't hear anything after finding them. Um, and that's why people are waiting for this book to find out what happened. But my finding, um, my family came from me going through the court system and I was turned down, but there was one person. And this is why I love kindness because sometimes it does take that one person to care. And she saw my frustration and I was standing there with my four children. And when they told me they couldn't help me, I literally stood there and bust out crying. And my kids were like hugging me like, mom, it's okay. What's wrong? I didn't mm-hmm. really tell them what we were in it for, but they were like, mom, what's wrong? It's going to be okay. And the lady, you know, met me at the elevator and she was like, um, you know, I'm going to do you a favor because I, I you know, I, I was literally telling these people like, y'all don't know what I've been through. I've been doing this, that, that, and the third. And, you know, it's so discouraging. And I said, the last thing that I said before I walked out of there is y'all don't understand. I really want to give up looking for these people because they gave me up anyway, mm. but I'm doing my children because I know how it feels not to know who you are and where you came from. And I don't want them to feel how I felt. And I guess that resonated with her because she came out to the elevator and was like, I want to help you. Wow. Um, and months went by. And after those months went by, I kind of forgot that I had connected with this lady. And I still was like, you know what? I'm going to keep on my journey and keep looking. And you know, around 10 a.m. February 1st, she called me and she was like, Miss Stroman, are you sitting down? And I was like, hey, who's this? She told me, you know, I, out of sight, out of mind, no update, no nothing. So I'm like, well, who was this? And she told me who she was. And I was like, oh, hey, hey, girl, how you doing? And, you know, of it, I'm thinking she's about to say, you know, well, I wasn't able to find anything. But no, she was like, I found your dad. And, you know, I got goosebumps, mm-hmm. got cold, just felt like time stopped and I was like what what you mean (laughs) (laughs) and she was like I found Richard so-and-so so-and-so and And I'm like that ain't my dad my name my dad name is Kevin Hamilton because I thought that's what I saw it that wasn't his name (laughs) she was like she was like well no this is your dad and you know it's in your sealed record um so this is definitely him I called him um I gave him your birth name and he pulled over and he was crying and he was like, that's my firstborn. That's my baby girl. Um, he gave up all his information and told her to connect us. And she gave me his information and I sat on it. 
for like an hour i immediately ran to social media <laughs> <laughs> so the, i'm like these are my people i gotta tell them wow <laughs> Um, I ran the social media and I was like, y'all, I need y'all to pray for me. They just, you know, I just got a phone call that my father was found and I don't know what to do. And people were like, girl, if you don't call them, like they were encouraging me, but I disconnected from social media for a second because I just didn't know what to do with that information. And I called my Marita and as soon as she picked up the phone, I just was like hysterical crying. She was like, what's wrong? You know, she was upset. She's like, what's wrong? Who did it? What's going on? And I was like, they found my dad. And I just was stuck. And she all screaming and excited on the other end of the phone. And I'm just sitting there clueless. Like, I don't know what to do. She was like, well, are you going to call him? I was like, no. She said, what you mean? No. You were looking. Yeah. (laughs) She was like, what you mean? No. I was like, I don't know what to say to him. And, you know, like an hour went past and... I was on my way to do my taxes. (laughs) (laughs) I was on my way to do my taxes. So I'm standing at the bus stop and I'm like, all right, I'm giving myself this talk. I'm like, all right, Lisa, get your life together and call this Mm -hmm. man. I called him and he just was like, hey, daughter. And I'm like, "Uh, hey. Yeah, like. And He's just talking a mile a minute, and I promise you, I'm not listening. I'm just like standing at the bus stop, just in awe that I'm talking to this man, and he's like really telling me stuff, and I'm not listening to nothing he's saying, but he's You're talking to me. And yeah, he's talking to me, and I'm like, oh my gosh. So he's giving me like his social media information. And while we're on the phone, I go to his Facebook and I look at these pictures and Janelle, I just was dumbfounded. I was so dumbfounded because it was like looking at myself and Mel. And I was like, oh my gosh. And he told me where he lived and he was five miles from where I was living at that present moment. And I was like, you know what? I could have been walking past my parents and never known because I never you know, really knew what anybody looked like. I saw the picture of um, my biological when we mm-hmm. were younger through the whole foster care process of adoption. They had given me a picture of her. Well, they put it in a book and um, my adopted mother took it. She swore she gave it to me, but I never was able to keep it. So I saw her for a brief moment, but I'm like, I could have been walking past these people and just never knew it. And when I saw his face, I just was like, numb. Wow. <laughs> I was numb. Um, I went and did my taxes and my tax guy and his assistant was just so excited because things just started moving so fast. Um, you know, I had talked to him and we had coordinated the meet and I'm like, he a stranger. I'm not giving him my address. <laughs> you <laughs> went in stranger danger house. mode. Yes. I'm like, he not coming to my house. I'm not going to his. I need my Marita with me because, you know, I, she was in the military and if we got to fight this nigga, like, I need backup. I don't know what's going to happen. You know, I just, I just didn't know what to expect and I wanted support. Um, So we coordinated for us to meet. I'm sitting there getting my taxes done and my tax guy, Brett Parker, he just was so excited because I was telling him, like, I found my dad today. And while I was sitting there with him, I got a phone call and my dad's name is Rick. And he gave me um, the correct spelling of my biological mother's name. 
and you know we both did some research and we were able to find wow. her on on social media on Facebook and when I connected with her um you know she's sitting on the phone and she's screaming you can tell she's running through the house she's like oh my god my baby my firstborn I just hear her in the background crying and screaming and shouting <laughs> Jesus and all kinds of stuff and um it just was it was it was an experience it was an experience um by the end of that night I had spoken to him I had spoken to her I had spoken to my aunt whose name is Kira and found out that that's where my middle name came from. I had spoken to my uncle in Australia and I had spoken to my sister who was born a year after me and she lived in Maryland. But when I went to go meet uh, my biological father for the first time, um, you know, I walked up on this man in the Chick-fil-A parking lot. (laughs) And when he turned around, my heart just started beating so fast because it was like looking at myself. And, you know, he was like, well, can I hug you? And we hugged each other. And the only thing he said, he was like, I can feel your heart beating. Wow. <laughs> and I just broke down crying when he said that. And I just held him. And I was like, oh, my God, like, this is my dad. Wow. And it just was, I don't know. It was a, it was an experience. It was definitely an experience. Well, that's where we connect the village. That's part of the growth. That's like a branch on your tree. One of the branches. Yeah. So I, I was able to help people and I finally connected with mines and, you know, people were excited for me. Um, yeah. It was just a, it was an amazing experience. And I am so happy that you met your family, but I met you as the hood therapist. Where did that come from? Right. <laughs> Because um, you're you're adopting oh. looking for your parents, then it's this name, right. the hood therapist. Right. So, um, born and raised in Philadelphia, and when I got back here, um, the section of the city that I lived in was Mount Airy, which is people call it the uppity section. Mount Airy and Chestnut Hill is known for being like the quote unquote suburban parts of the city, and the rest of the city is just mm-hmm. the hood. <laughs> So when I got back here, you know, I had to live in the places that I can afford because I wasn't able to go to college um, because I wasn't emancipated and she refused to fill out my financial aid. So I'm back in the city and I'm just floating around from place to place. Um, South Philadelphia, West Philly. I've literally lived in every single section of this city and it's been the hood parts because that's what I was able to afford. But I'm a social butterfly. I became a social butterfly. I found my voice. I came into who I am and being comfortable with myself. So I just started being kind and talking to everybody. And with me talking to people, um, you know, I would sit out on my step in these neighborhoods or, you know, working in the Baltimore area when I moved there, I was in the inner city. And I guess for me growing up around all brothers, um, I connected to men a lot. So I would find myself sitting around and, you know, I also did hair. So I'm doing hair and people, you know, barbers and hairdressers are quote unquote therapists because everybody tells all their business. Mm-hmm. Um, but sitting around and talking to people, I connected with a lot of men and they would literally pour out everything that they had been through. And with them pouring into me, I was pouring into them and they started saying, yo, this is some hood therapy. So, you know, they were sending people and next thing I know, it was like groups of us sitting on the step and, you know, it was really, it, it was, was dope. You did group sessions with men. Right. They really don't talk about 
intimate things or personal things or trauma, Mm -hmm. childhood trauma, relationship trauma, um, you know, molestation. I was about to say, that's why we don't believe in statistics because you know for a fact that you have a crew of men who have been molested, who had, who have had trauma. Suicide thoughts, right. They, They've been through a lot of things. You know, they talk to me why they, about why they turn to drugs or why they abuse women or issues that they have with their mother or father. Um, and with me sitting down and helping them through these things and also helping some of them reconnect to children um, that they had issues with the mother or, you know, um, fathers that they weren't connected to or even mothers helping them strengthen relationships, just helping them strengthen themselves and their relationships you know, they really took to me and they started calling me the hood therapist. And that's where that name and, came uh, from. You're planning on keeping that name, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I love it. Because when I first saw you, I was like, well, what does this hood therapist do? Let me check her out. And you and I connected instantly. Right. So, Danielle, now that you're the hood therapist, um, you stated earlier, and I wanted to touch on it before we end. You said you're a jack of all trades. You went to many schools. And then you say you're a hair braider. So how does that Reconnected Village actually look? Um, So Reconnected Village, it actually, if I'm being truthful, Reconnected Village came from my little brother. Um, he was a foster child as well, and he got adopted into the same family. His name was Ernest Allen Stroman. And um, same way I was put out, she kept him longer, but eventually she put him out, and he had an alcohol problem. He, From his trauma, he had turned to alcohol. And, you know, that changes people's behavior, moods, and everything else. And I don't want to give excuse, but I'm willing to believe because I took him in as well. I believe that she put him out because his behavior was so sporadic. And in my head, I'm like, well, my brother's been missing for two years. Y'all don't know where he's at. So when y'all find him, I want Mm -hmm. my brother. And at the time I was in Maryland. So um, my other brother, my other survived, my older brother actually died from cancer. So it was two surviving brothers and myself. Um, that lived in that household. Of course, I had older siblings because she had married someone that was old enough to be her father. But in the immediate household, it was three boys, one girl. Um, So I had two surviving brothers and my younger brother um, brought my youngest brothers to live with me in Baltimore. And um, I had a conversation with him. So, you know, I'm helping people we didn't know any of his real history outside of the fact that he was born addicted to um, mm-hmm. crack cocaine. And, you know, he had the similar, he had the same issues that I had not knowing who he was, you know, battling um, identity issues and wanting to know. And then, you know, being casted out of the home that he, that he knew, you know, the bottle was right. his comfort. So, I wound up getting into a really bad domestic situation, which um, almost almost lost my life twice. And I wound up coming back to Philadelphia. But him and I, my brother and I had agreed that he needed help. And I had attempted to get him help several times and he had left that help. And I said to myself, you know, he's not going to get help until Absolutely. he's ready to. So I tried to be with him. And he had finally agreed to go get the help. And in the midst of that, I came back to Philadelphia um, for my safety. 
and the guy that tried to kill me is now doing 13 years but still was bothering mm-hmm. me so when I came back um my brother wound up passing and, my deepest condolences you know I, thank you yeah he wound up passing in Maryland and that kind of sparked me really forming this into an official business because I wasn't able to help him reconnect. And I know that that's something that him and I had talked about and he was encouraging me to finish my book because it would help people heal. And he was encouraging me to get my business together. So I went through about two months of depression because that was like one of my kids that I lost um, because he was literally 10 years younger than me. And, you know, I was like, I got to do this for Ernie. So I started officially farming all of my paperwork to make my business. And, you know, I set everything up on social media, which people were looking for it anyway, because I was already doing the work. I just didn't have the actual business structure. And you Um, are doing the work. Right. I've I've been doing the work. I just officially got my business up and running in 2020, uh, paperwork wise. And fast forward to 2021, Um, Reconnected Village has shaped from me just helping people connect to their family to actually providing, you know, the therapeutic services through life coaching because I was already doing that work. I I think you've been doing that work since you were 12 years old, Danielle. I just want to let you know that. um, Yes. Probably. (laughs) You've been doing the work. You became unmuted. I've always talked to people. Yeah, I've I've always um, talked to people and helped them through their issues. So I have been technically doing the work since I was younger. Um, But yeah, moving forward, once I formed the business and yeah, through the process of helping people, they literally were still coming back to me like, um, you know, how do I handle this? And I was coaching them through those things um, through life period because everything was connected, you know, the trauma I went back to school and, you know, focused on business and trauma um, in the mental health realm because I wanted to understand myself and I wanted to understand other people. And I also wanted to help my children because me parents in front of a place of fear, some of my experiences turned into trauma for my children because they were going through that journey with me. Um, So Reconnected Village now, present day, is not only me helping people find their family, but actually helping them heal um, because I came on Clubhouse, which is where mm-hmm. you and I met. <laughs> and when I got on Clubhouse, I was marketing my business as, you know, I'm helping people connect to their family and providing therapeutic services. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I started to see that this app is connected to the world and we're in the middle of a pandemic and people are literally sitting on these stages and pouring out their trauma. And, you know, there were moderators on on this app and they were, you know, I'm sorry for your loss or, you know, things are going to get better. They were giving them very generic responses and people were going on mute and I'm an empath. So I was feeling their pain. I was absolutely, you know, when they came off, you can tell Mm -hmm. when somebody's hurting. Um, And they were hurt and I didn't like how their situation was being handled. So I started saying, do you mind if I talk to this person? And my community started to grow on Clubhouse because I was literally speaking up and helping these people and giving them real help. Um, And I found myself doing crisis response on this app as well because people were literally talking about being tired and wanting to end their life. And um, it's just it was like, oh, my gosh, you got to help them. So I was pulling people into private rooms and helping them. 
giving them my phone number, hopping on video conferences, do Instagram, whatever way I can get to these people to help them immediately. I was doing that because they needed that help. And I didn't feel comfortable with them just going back on mute and being silenced and sitting in that sorrow. Um, so there I, I started the mental health check-in, which is yes. where you came in. <laughs> <laughs> the mental health check-in came from, you know, people need the space. And I have all these people now following me because they see that I'm helping. So I'm going to hold that space for them. And that room was supposed to be an hour and it turned out being three and four and one time mm-hmm. seven hours. And I just was making sure that I was holding space and listening to them and really actively helping them in that moment because I never wanted anybody to get off of that stage and feel like they right. were. And better. the thing is what I want to say, Danielle, um, I'm I'm a social worker and I have my nine to five. And what I do is what I realize is that we all work with people and we, I realized I only work nine to five, but most of the crisis is after five. Remember you said you'd be on that app. You was on that app one time for seven hours. And the reason why you was on that app for so many hours is because people needed that help at the after five hour. At 5.01, probably your room was filling up because now we're off of work and now we have no one checking in on us as a therapist, as a social worker, as a mental health counselor, as a life coach, as all these hats that many of us wear, we can't, we wear those hats, but we don't understand that we need help too. We need someone to ask us, how is our day? Therapist, yes. And it's really hard. It's really hard to, you know, process what you've been through because I could tell you right now, Danielle, if I go to work tomorrow, there could be a new case, sexual abuse, physical abuse, a parent overdose, all of those. And those are three different traumatic issues that a child is going through and a family is going through. And now they're on my desk. And now I got to help all right. three of them within the 24-hour span. So it's really right. hard for us. So that is why I want to thank you so much for taking the time to record this podcast and share this with the world. Because you know what? Like I tell anybody, when you're on your journey to self-care, somebody that somebody is out there either fighting to start a journey to self-care and they're struggling because they don't know how and they feel as if they're in this well alone. And through these journeys, what we're showing others is they don't have to do this alone. Right. Yeah, because my journey of self-care um, looked like many different things over the years. Um, so I do need people to understand that self-care is continuous work um, because things are always happening and you always have to hold space for yourself before you can hold space for others. So I definitely make sure that I'm um, listening to my body, paying attention to my emotions and keeping myself in that constant balance, because that's another thing when you're having people pour into you, you have to make sure that you're okay before you can even put yourself in that environment. Otherwise you're just absorbing their emotions and they're you're not. Okay. And that's what turns into burnout. Danielle, if someone wanted to speak to you after listening to this episode, I know you're very visual on Instagram. Can you give us your Instagram handle so that people around the world can connect? (laughs) Because that's the way people connect in these days (laughs) through social media. 
So I'm laughing because every time I saw my Instagram name, people uh, laugh at it and they say why. <laughs> so <laughs> my Instagram name is nope, N-O-P-E underscore not N-O-T underscore today, T-U-H-D-A-Y. And I picked that name because people come with um, nonsense sometimes. And I want to say that the one person that I look up to in the industry is Iyanla Van Zandt. Like I would, I aspire to be like her. At one point, I wanted her to fix my life, and then I realized that I can do what she does. So I'm definitely following in her footsteps and would love to meet her one day. But I am definitely a person that comes from compassion, caring, love. Um, Anyone that sits in my presence can feel that exuding from me. But I'm also a person that will tell you about yourself. So I'm like a no-nonsense person. So nope, not today means that any time that you read this, don't bring it this way. Because nope, not today, not tomorrow, <laughs> not ever. We love it. So make sure that you guys connect with her on Instagram. If anything in this episode resonated with you and you would like to speak to Danielle or myself, please see the contact information in the show notes. Her Um, Instagram handle will be in the show notes. So Danielle, before I end any podcast, would you like to spread some positivity to anyone who is going through something? Would you like to share some positive words? Definitely. In my mental health check-in, I share something um, that I do want to share with everyone. And then I have another thing that I share as well. So the first thing is my trash truck analogy, which mm-hmm. you're familiar with. <laughs> um, so I tell people that, you know, we're kind of like that trash truck in a sense that a trash truck goes from block to block to block, just picking up trash and it compacts those things down. And that's what we do with our experiences and our emotions. We don't want to deal with them. So we're just packing it down and we keep going. However, that trash truck goes to someplace eventually and it dumps that trash. We need to do the same thing. We need to start unpacking the trauma, the hurt, anything that we're going through, even if it's something for the day. We need to learn to start unpacking things so that we're not constantly carrying it along our journey with us. The other thing that I want to share is people are often saying rock bottom. Um, They hit rock bottom. Rock bottom is a comfortable space for me simply because when you hit rock bottom, um, that's a place of darkness. It's a place of um, foundation. A place of darkness is where you usually can see the light the brightest. You can be walking in the light, but you really don't have direction sometimes because you can't see the light. You're in it. So I feel like when you're at rock bottom, that's when you can see the brightest light. Also, it gives you that foundation so that you can stand up and rocket yourself higher than where you were. So it allows you to elevate yourself. So think of it as darkness where you can see the light and a place where you can actually stand, get your footing and then jump and skyrocket further. Thank you so much, Danielle, for sharing your journey to self-care with JS Self-Care. We love you and we cannot wait until the book comes out. And hopefully you could come, you consider coming back on to share with us your book. For sure, for sure. Blessings, love. I know that was a lot to take in, but I definitely appreciate you for staying to the end and learning a little bit about me. I will for sure be unpacking so much more because life has thrown me so much. But I'm blessed to have grown through it all to be able to stand here 
provide this space of healing for others. So make sure that you tap back in next Friday. I'll be introducing one of my standing co-hosts as we talk about suicide as it is Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. As always, I want to encourage everyone to go out and have a blessed day on purpose. Love on yourself before you love on others. Don't allow anyone to shake your spirit. And always know that positivity is the best attitude. Blessings, love, and light you all.